Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, writer Jonathan Lethem. Walking through the leaves, falling from the trees, feeling like a stranger nobody sees. So many things that we never will undo. I know you're sorry. I'm sorry, too. Some people will offer you their hand and some won't. Last night I knew you. Tonight I don't. I need something strong to distract my mind. I'm going to look at you till my eyes go blind. Well, I got here following the Southern Star. I crossed that river just to be where you are. Only one thing I did wrong. Stayed in Mississippi a day too long. That's great. Fabulous. I love the end. Actually, the ending of that particular bit that you did... Only one thing I did wrong. I never thought about it like that. Yeah. You know, like, I'm going to admit to one. Only one thing I just did wrong. Just one thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, why did you, yeah. uh, why, welcome, Jonathan. Why did you choose that? Thanks. I'm, it's so nice to do this. Um, well, I mean, I, I love Mississippi, and I, I guess I, I'll admit to being, seeing myself as an advocate for, for late Dylan. You know, I, I, I cribbed, I did my homework and saw how many people's selections for this uh, l- lyric excerpt were, you know, kind of, 1974 or earlier, mm, mm. and that, that seemed to me, since I've, I've married myself to 80s Dylan by writing that liner note uh, for the album of covers, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, I'll, okay, I'll speak, you know, I'll, I'll be the Lorax, I'll speak for the, the trees, I'll, I'll, I'll advocate for, for late Dylan. And, and the Mississippi lyric is so extraordinary, and, and also the performance history of it is very interesting for me. I mean, I, I first heard that there was sort of the legend of a suppressed Dylan song from from Time Out of Mind, and um, I'm always interested in those songs that were excluded from records. Mm. You know, the, mm. the the great four or five, you know, recordings from Infidels that didn't didn't make it huh. onto Infidels, yeah. you know, Blind Willie McTell, and, uh, you know, again and again, I mean, all this is endlessly interesting to me that, that he'll lay down a great song and then lose track of it or become impatient with the recording and not try again. And that's how you get things like Up to Me or or Blind Willie McTell. And so with Time Out of Mind, there was this word that, you know, there's a song, there's a stray song. And, um, and he, he, you know, gave it to Sheryl Crow. (laughs) So I went out and bought my first (laughs) Sheryl Crow record because I wanted to know what it sounded like. Mm. And I, I listened to it a lot in her performance, Mm. kind of trying to feel the Dylan song inside it. And, and the lyrics very good. And, and the Sheryl Crow recording doesn't, destroy it. I won't, I won't say too many negative things about Sheryl Crow. It's fine. And then you get the song and it, it stands out as um, a great lyric that almost overwhelms its context, although the next record is very good. There's something about Love and Theft where uh, Mississippi almost stands, stands astride the, the record, mm. doing, uh, just doing an amazing amount of work. It is, you know, it's interesting that he, he held it off time out of mind because it, it thematically it seems to announce the next phase of his work, the kinds of motifs, the kinds of imagery. But I also think it's a little greater as a piece of songwriting than most of the rest of that work, <laughs> which is an album I revere, and the next couple of albums mean a lot to me, but not so much for the modular great songs that you could just take out or you want to hear covered or done in many versions, so much as the overall ambiance of those records. 
There's something else which always interests me interested me about Mississippi and its place within the Time Out of Mind kind of cycle as well, mm. in that a lot of those songs are about moving. Time Out of Mind begins with, yeah. with the, the phrase, I'm walking. <laughs> Highlands is, is right. very sort of metronomic. And there are certain points when things go wrong, he stops moving. He's standing in the doorway. That's great. You know? And yeah, Mississippi, he's doorway. fine. But what did he do wrong? He didn't leave. He you know? didn't keep He stopped moving. moving. Yeah, That's right. the thing, isn't it? That's great. That's a wonderful insight. I, I love it. And and it's right. I mean, I mean, all of that period, when you get to the bootleg series that covers it and you get to consider songs like Cross the Green River, right? And I mean, your, your thesis is only proven more and more perfectly by, by the the extra stuff. And, you know, his, his obsession with trying to get Mississippi right on that box set. What's that one called? The, the Telltale uh, Signs. Yeah. Uh, Telltale Signs. Yeah. Such a great set. Mm. And the, the three different versions of yeah. Mississippi. Uh, and it just enriches and deepens so beautifully. I mean, and I think the first outtake on on Telltale Signs is probably my favorite you, you performance mean the, of Mississippi. Yeah, yeah the opening world to in Telltale Signs. Uh, to exactly. me, that's my that's yeah. my favorite too. That Daniel Lenoir guitar, which I think is perfection. Actually, I mean, I really it's think that's the just best. a great version. Yeah, and and yeah. every step of the way we walk the line. Your days are numbered, so are mine. Times piling up, we struggle and we scrape. We're all block boxed in, no way to escape. That is so simple for Dylan. I've always yeah. loved that because you just think it's so ineffably sad and true and it's not complicated you could you could play that for anybody who says oh i don't like yeah. dylan he's too blah and it, it's just it's such right. a beautiful version it's not overtly poetic they're just lines that land i mean in that way it reminds me of some of the some of the greatness in uh 10 years before in um in oh mercy where he's writing these simpler lyrics, you know, that are for, for this very studied, new, gravelly vocal performance that he's come up with. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, not a, it's not a poem for the page. It's a series of absolutely heart-destroying, deep statements about his presence on Earth. You know, he's just experiencing himself. And then, you know, and then it's also a quip. It ends with, uh, you know, with a joke, which is also very characteristic. And one of the things I... I mean, in every period of Dylan, I think the humor is underrated as a feature of the, you know, the operation. Mm. And uh, going back to Telltale Signs, an, another song that seems to anticipate uh, for me is um, is Huck's tune, mm. uh, which is such a great, unknown, mm. largely unknown mm. song. And again, it's that understatement, the tossed off kind of hard-boiled quip, I'm going to have to put you down for a while. Yeah. You know, it's just... It's just a, it's a mic drop, you know? Mm. <laughs> Only one thing I did wrong, stayed in Mississippi a day too long. So as unadorned as the earlier lines are, they're still, they exist in a kind of a air of suspension, mm. you know, cumulative power and implication. And then suddenly there's the exit door, you know, and the joke is the exit door, but it also conceals, it's a hard boiled move. It conceals pain, you know, it's the crushed mm. romanticism of the quipster or the, you know, the hard boiled detective who, isn't going to tell you how badly you've heard him. And I love the way he turns around again in Mississippi when he, he says, well, first of all, he says, my ship's been split to splinters, which is a tough line to yeah. sing. And it's sinking yeah. fast. I'm drowning in the poison. Got no future, but got no past. And then to me, the, this turnaround, but my heart is not weary. It's light and yeah. it's free. I've got nothing but affection for all those who sailed with me. That's such a huge turnaround. You know, it's, just, it's like he's, he's drowning. But then... He's yeah. kind of ascending to heaven. 
that's also that's Herman Melville right there. Mm. That's the ending of Moby Dick. <laughs> My ship's been sp- split to splinters. Of course, right? It is. I mean yeah. that that really is the last page uh, with Ishmael in the whirlpool, watching it all go down. Oh my god! And uh, and and equally, you know, wistful, affectionate, not not embittered by the experience, but wondering what his prospect might be. You know, and the prospect is he'll he'll tell the tale. He'll live to tell the tale. How much when you first heard that album did you, I mean, because it came out in September 2001, in fact, on the 11th, I believe. How much were you hearing those songs against that backdrop when it was released? Oh, it was very strange. I mean, everything became implicated in that experience. And um, you were looking for clues. And I remember there at the time, there there seemed to be some very oddly apropos, you know, some lyrics that threw, threw you for a loop. Because, right, it, it, it was released that day. But soon enough, you came through this desire to find, you know, it's, it's almost like the human p- pain of confusion reaches for intricate designs, reaches for conspiracy theories or coincidence to, to make sense of something. And then you move through that and you, you discover consolation instead. Mm. But um, it was a very very uncomfortable time. You know, I was spending, one of the funny things is another association I have for Mississippi is, I mean, the people I spent time with that, that very day, the people I watched the smoke plume of 9-11 rise with included my friend, the novelist and short story writer, David Gates, who's a pretty good, you know, uh, singer and guitarist Mm -hmm. and works on Dylan songs. And he latched on. So we, we experienced that day together, which was itself a very, kind of emotional bonding thing to do. And then we were together a lot in the following months. And the thing he was trying to do was nail a performance just sitting in his room of Mississippi. He was trying to get that song down. And it's very hard. And it was he was working very hard to to sing it and get the changes right and and deal with things like ship spins split to splinters, you know. <laughs> uh, and I would sit with him and we would just be in this very mournful space and he'd be working on a rendition of Mississippi. Uh, that's the the memory that evokes. And then a few um, years later, you uh, were interviewing Bob Dylan for Rolling Stone, or rather writing yeah. an article about Bob Dylan for Rolling Stone, which incorporated an interview. Because I've read the it, you know the article a couple of times, and it's it's fascinating because it's it's like a lot of your writing in that it's it's not a straightforward piece. Um, how did that come yeah. about in the first place? <laughs> it's it's well, there's a lot to say about that experience, and I mean. Um, I've never really been terrifically fond of the uh, profile as a form, as a literary form. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to write an essay or a short story. Of course, I'm a novelist, and I fooled around with some other forms. But the profile, you know, sort of like me and the movie star sitting in a restaurant. He ordered the grilled cheese sandwich. You know, I left my salad untouched. Uh, that that just uh, really has always left me really cold, and I've I've resisted the assignments except when I found the the subject an irresistible encounter. And I had just done a few months before or a year before, something like that, this enormous piece of work for Rolling Stone. This was my great period of pretending to be a music writer and I was reveling in it. I had written a novel that kind of misidentified me as a music writer because I was, I'd written an autobiographical novel, but I'd given the, the character who most resembled me the job of being a, a writer of liner notes. People started... <laughs> naturally, thinking I'd done that kind of work. And so they, they gave me assignments. And Jan Wenner, I remember, I was in his office. He was preparing to send me down to Augusta, Georgia to spend four days in the studio with James Brown and his band. 
And I was asking a lot of really dumb questions. At some point, he turned to the assigning editor who was in the room with us and said, has this guy ever done this before? <laughs> so I'd done this James Brown piece, which was this epic journey. And, and you know, I was, I was circling around this mysterious, protean, impossible figure. James Brown, especially in his dotage, was really unapproachable. He was just like a – it was like trying to interview a, a tornado or a tsunami. But I spent all this time with his, his band and in the studio and watching him from afar and – you know, sometimes bantering with him because he would he would suddenly notice me and and say a few very peculiar things, and I wrote this epic piece about James Brown that was really one of the most uh, complex but but rewarding writing journeys I'd ever taken. I really felt like I wrote sort of a novella about the, those four days with James Brown, and then that resulted in John Winter trusting me, and so he he gave me the you know the big the big Kahuna, mm-hmm. especially from his perspective. He was like, uh, we. Uh, we're talking to Dylan about the cover. You know, I, I guess Dylan always uh, <laughs> quid, quid pro quos are very much in the news right <laughs> yes. now. He always bargains the, the the interview against do I get the cover. So he either gives it to Newsweek or Rolling Stone or Time huh. back in those days, and he he would also pick the writer, and they'd give him a few choices, and he'd pick someone, and he'd he'd pick my friend David Gates, who was the one practicing Mississippi mm. a few years before. Well, this now it was my turn. Jan Winter said he, you know, Dylan said he'd 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 like you and we'll give him the cover and so uh will you do this? And I was picturing another experience like the James Brown thing, but it was nothing like that. Because first of all, Dylan's world may be chaotic, but he's not going to let you into it the way James Brown let me just parachute in. Mm. Uh I met Dylan in a a large hotel room a suite of hotel rooms in Santa Monica for a very controlled period of time. And we talked for about three hours continuously, and that was it. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a fly on the wall in the recording studio. I wasn't going to follow him around. He was going to, you know, drive, and I was going to worry about him killing us both on the the Highway 1 or something. (laughs) It was going to be this really controlled encounter. And at the same time, it was very generous. He was there. He was completely just sitting wanting the thing to go well. And that was one of the first things that I understood was that despite the great reputation for sort of hostility or combativeness, that was not the situation I was in. That actually in picking the writer and picking the occasion and, and bargaining for the cover of the of the magazine, he was doing a very professional thing. He was trying to promote his record well and put himself in a situation where he'd enjoy talking and give one effective interview and then out. You know, so he was minimizing the, the effort of promoting the record, but he was also going to maximize it while it was happening. He was going to talk to me about whatever I wanted to talk about. And he was, you know, the only advice I've been given was make sure you do show some interest in the new recording because that's, he'll, he'll be kind of crestfallen if you don't. So this that, was modern times. He, just, I don't know if we've mentioned that. This in, was from modern 2006. times. In 2006. In 2006. I'd been allowed to hear the record through one time <laughs> in full. I'd been invited to the offices, to the Dylan offices mm. in New York City to sit in a room and listen to the record through once. So I heard Modern Times and I took notes and then they, you know, switched it off. And I were you with other journalists or other? No, I was all alone. Just all alone. But that's the thing is it, this was, I was all alone in a room <laughs> and there were two things in the room besides me and the speakers that were piping the songs in. A giant, what I took to be a giant poster of the cover of self-portrait. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting thing to blow up and put on the wall. And then I stood a little closer and I realized, oh, those are brush strokes. That's the painting. Okay, that's cool. And then on the other wall were these endless, uh, like a nerd professor's collection of 
concordances of American blues lyrics and books on the history of American popular song and the blues and folk balladry. And I realized, that's Dylan's cribbing library. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Did he have some pages to That's his down. working. Well, I didn't get to, to fondle the books. I just stood and looked at their spines. But it was, it was profound to realize, of course, he's got it. That's his reference library. So I heard this, the album through once, and I went in with all my nervous questions and all my excitement. And, and we talked for three hours straight, and he was completely direct and generous with me. And I, I could tell he wanted it to go well. This was the opposite of like a 1966 press conference in Australia or something. Ooh, mm. He was not impatient. He was solicitous. He was trying to get a great result for us both. And in that spirit, I had a really good time and was completely fond of him, which is a good strategy. He should, anyone in that situation should try to make the journalist like you, right? He's, he's not being, you know, I don't, I don't mean that I think it was totally ingenuous. I think it was what he wanted to have happen and it worked. We had a good time. Mm. And he said a lot and I, I pared it down to, you know, he, he talked a tremendous amount. But whereas the James Brown, okay, there's a long story. I know, I'm sorry. I'm not leaving you guys any time to talk. The Go James ahead. Brown thing was like, you figure it out. You've got to write it. And I wrote it. And it was my piece. And it was really a, a kind of creative or generative process. The Dylan quotes, when I began to transcribe these tapes, were so good. And every implication of, in my questions had been given such an interesting, rich turn in his thinking that it was like a collaborative piece. I felt I was writing it with Dylan hmm. and that it wrote itself. All I had to really do was give an account. Ironically, it was sort of like, uh, you know, I sat across from the movie star, he ordered a salad. I felt that the piece was really about the encounter and what he'd said then and how he was feeling that day. And that my job was just to grab, grab the moment and reproduce it as, as closely and sincerely as I could. And I was happy that a couple of like classic Dylan quotes popped out, you know, like things that have circulated since and detached from the, that occasion. I want to read um, you a, a line from this, Jonathan, because this is a fascinating bit yeah. of so Dylan psychology. As ever, Dylan is circling, defining what he is first by what he isn't, by what he doesn't want, doesn't like, doesn't need, locating meaning by a process of elimination. And then you go on to say that this is a rhetorical strategy that goes back as, at least as far as it ain't me, babe, and all I really want to do. It ain't me, babe, right? <laughs> and it's, it fascinates <laughs> yeah. me. Kerry and I were talking about this earlier on about artists that will sit you down and they will tell you what they don't want. Yes. As opposed to what they do. I'm, I'm reading something uh, at the moment. Well, a lot of things at the moment because I'm writing something about Stanley Kubrick. And he uh, had the same – there are many quotes where, where actors are saying, Stanley, after 60 takes – Tell me what you want. Yeah. And what he you would want. say, he says, not this, I, not I, that. I, I, I'm not going to tell you what I want. I don't know what I want. I know what I don't want. Boom. Deal that, with it. That's great. That's it's great. great. It's kind yes, of fair and it enough, makes a lot of sense. I think. It's, it's, if you're yeah. going to create something unknowable, you don't know what it is. But you do know well, what you don't want you know, to be. Well, and that's, you know, I mean, you consider the experience of his bandmates, all, the, all <laughs> those accounts of being in the studio, waiting, watching his hands. What chord is it going to be? The lack of of kind of uh, normal communicative support that he'll offer. And then also, you know, the thing I alluded to before, the elimination of songs that people were like, oh, well, you should have heard the ones he, he rehearsed and never even, we never even laid down. Yeah. It's, it's elimination. And the power of his negativity, the power to say no to things, it's a form of creative dynamism that he can say no to whole songs, whole sessions, whole you know, movements that have swept him up. I mean, how many people could have 
turn down the kinds of coronations he's been offered, right? But that mm-hmm. renews him. And it's <laughs> the only thing he did wrong was stay in Mississippi a day too long. It's he a, wanted to go there. He also <laughs> wanted to leave. Yeah. It's interesting that he took so long to turn down uh, producers for his albums. I've I've always had a bit of trouble understanding that, mm. you know, because yeah. he worked with producers and fought with producers and, you yeah. know, complained about producers and, and, and let producers, certain producers, you know, more or less ruin s- some of the albums, particularly in the yeah. 80s, which maybe we'll, we'll get on to discussing. Uh, but, and then oh, yeah. finally, he did say no, <laughs> you know, and finally, and yeah. I think I read somewhere, because I've been reading so much about him recently, where he just said, yeah, you know, they always got in the way. So I thought, why why have that other person around? But you thought, yeah, yeah. but Bob, you could have done that 50 years ago. And I understand why he didn't do it for the first six years. It's really interesting, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think one of the tricks is that he got lucky for a decade. And so he learned to kind of shruggingly accept that the record company wanted that person there <laughs> because when he heard, of course, there are these complex results like uh, Blonde on Blonde, where he goes to Nashville to, you know, kind of redo parts of it. But still, the sound is there. I mean, the thin, wild Mercury sound, right? It, it, it's on the records. Mm. He didn't really have a disaster, in to my listening, he doesn't really have a disaster producing-wise until, ironically, the, well, I mean, yeah, we can talk about the whole self-portrait dynamic that's a that's a weird fiasco right but the the place where he really makes a tries to make a, a an album length statement a cycle of dylan songs that he wants to go in and record and it comes out sounding wrong mm. to anyone's ears is street legal where he had a big idea of his own so that probably crossed him up for a while and he thought oh i really don't know what i'm doing if i like you know because he what did he do he just in he just put the microphone in the middle of the room and had his gigantic <laughs> band all play, and it sounds like mud. Hmm. And yet, he was liberated when he finally assumed the persona of Jack Frost, and you get Love and Theft, and you get Modern Times. Modern Times, I mean, he couldn't have known this when you talked to him, but Modern Times was his best-selling album since Desire. He was advertising That's iPods. Yeah. You know, he was on a roll. Yeah. And it, it was That's like an he amazing was fact. freed mm. somehow, you know? Yeah. Well, it works out beautifully. And I mean, I, the other thing, you, you mentioned Lanois' guitar playing. Mm. And there's two, you know, there's two Daniel Lanois realities. There's there's the Lanois sound. There's Lanois as a player or as an element. And then there's Lanois as a kind of controlling, mm. uh, overarching uh, auteur, someone who has an idea mm. about how things should sound. And, mm. you know, when you hear an Amy Lou Harris record that Lanois did, you're like, oh, that's a Daniel Lanois yeah. record, mm. right? And with, with Oh Mercy, I think there was a very ambivalent result. If I could read Dylan's mind, it's also partly reading his, his strange book about that experience, <laughs> that it was a real push and pull. The album was a kind of comeback, and there's something very seductive in that sound, but it's really, it's like the Amy Lou Harris. It's a real Lenoir record, mm. right? It has that shimmer. Mm. Uh, you know, he's the auteur of that record. And I think Dylan seemed very, I'm guessing he was very defensive and, and ambivalent about that result. And that's, you know, then you get Under the Red Sky where he, it's kind of, you know, with Don Was, what you feel in a way, it's not a Jack Frost production, but it's sort of a hands-off, let me just rock out, let me just see what I sound like in the studio, just catch, capture what we're doing here kind of record. So it's like an anti-Lanois, you know, reaction record. Mm. And you then know, it's anti-producer entirely, isn't it? Then it's just two songs in his garage of acoustic blues songs. Right. 
Right. There's another option out of the situation. Yeah. With the situation being, of course, you know, if I'm if I'm recording another side of Bob Dylan and I'm just sitting in front of a mic with a guitar all night, I can pretty much get what I want out of it, right? Mm. So the problem of producing is the problem of the band. The problem of the producer is what do you do with all those instruments? Do you overdub? Do they sit in the same room? You know, how do you handle that? And Lanois has one very specific notion about that. And it cuts against all of Dylan's desire for spontaneity and, and you know, kind of dynamic between him and the band to be controlled that way. But Oh Mercy is a kind of a comeback in its moment and certainly critically the way it was, the way it refurbished all of the reputation he'd seemed to sacrifice with the preceding few studio records. Mm. But you're a big fan of other moments in the 80s before Oh Mercy, aren't you? Moments before Oh Mercy, yeah. but you have to you have to be selective, and you have to also deal with production issues. And it's awfully helpful when the bootleg series comes and fills in. Yeah. You know, when you get Angelina and Foot of Pride and Blind Willie McTell back into the conversation, <laughs> yeah. the '80s looks a lot better. So uh, you know, I I will go all the way to to saying that there are sort of uh, defensible or involving moments for me on even on records you know, that are usually seen as the, the kind of the bridge too far, like down in the groove and, and knocked out loaded and, and empire burlesque, mm-hmm. um, you know, which have different problems. They all emerge by different fiasco methodology. They're not, they're not all one thing. Well, I, I know uh, that you, uh, you've, I think been on record as saying that the second side of, uh, under the red sky is, is as good as, as a lot of his stuff you know, got around that time. And uh, I mean, I, I, I enjoy listening to Under the Red Sky. I, I find it an enjoyable album. The, the sound's not great, but um, I put it on for, you know, danceability and sort of, yeah. and imagery. There's some great imagery and great storytelling, you know, Under the Red Sky. Well, it is, breaks down into, a, I mean, Under the Red Sky and Born in Time are, are real Dylan songs. And they're very compressed and they're not very poetically elaborated ones. But I also think that, what, talking about the second side, I mean, the, the movement from uh, God Knows through Handy Dandy and then especially Cats in the Well, mm-hmm. there is no greater forecast of the Dylan who was to come out of the, you know, the love and theft modern times, you know, together through life era. That's the sound that he's reaching for there. Mm-hmm. And I think it's funny how how much people are uncomfortable. You know, I'm Wiggle Wiggle is a terrible way to start a record. And yes, so is there any day women? You know, I think there's a joke in there, isn't it? Right. It is about it's about tossing it off. It's about daring your audience to dismiss you, right? Yeah, absolutely. But, um, really, if you if you could play a little thought experiment, you know, and put cats in the well right into the middle of love and theft or modern times, mm-hmm. it would exemplify that sound and that songwriting style. You know, the kind of the n- renewed reliance on a kind of uh, collective anonymized Americana. I think that had more to do with where he was headed and the problem, you know, the way he would solve his problem in replenishing his songwriting gifts was was with this kind of appropriative, more, you know, it's less about I, Bob Dylan, am saying and writing these things that no one has ever said or thought or written before. And it's more like I am going to become the archetypal, uh, timeless voice that, is constantly reviving bits of vernacular or, uh, you know, kind of um, mythic American lyrical or, or, or rhetorical 
gestures. You know, it's in Mississippi. It's just <laughs> what you were saying about it at the beginning. It's not money doesn't talk, it swears. It's not, mm. it's not Desolation Row or It's All Right, Ma. It's not the defiance of I'm the greatest iconoclast you've ever met. It's more like I speak for the 20th century <laughs> and I need it. It supports me. It gives me the language I, I need in order to, to make songs. Do you think that arc goes all the way through? Because for me, I mean, you talked about modern times, you talked about Huck's tune, that's up to 2007. For me, after yeah. that, some of the wheels start to fall off a bit. I said on an earlier podcast that I love the, the Muddy Waters rip-offs of modern times and I can't stand them on Together Through Life. I'm not quite sure why that is, but it seems to me that, yeah. that some of the momentum kind of goes there. And I've, and I've still, here we are seven years later, I'm still trying to like Tempest. I can't quite get into it in the way that I do modern yeah, times. Yeah, those are very difficult records. And, uh, you know, I, I've sort of joked with myself that, you know, I spent my whole Dylan life kind of making fun of people who got off the bus. How could you, how could you not hear how great the Christian music was? How, how, you know, how can you not be interested in the great compositions of the mid eighties, the Mark Knopfler collaborations, you know, yeah. don't you hear it? He's still there. He's mm. still there. And, you know, and of course I'm, I, I feel so vindicated by all the people who got back on the bus with time out of mind. And, and, um, you know, I never got off it. And, and then I started to, to feel <laughs> in the last few years, precisely with the records that you mentioned. Yeah. I thought, oh, wait, finally, I get to have the experience that everyone else has had with him, which is to think, I don't hear it, you know? But you're, and, at least you're listening, and, because there's a lot of I, people I am listening. who yeah. stopped yeah. listening, you know, because the, yeah. you know, the 60s were so powerful to them, and the early 70s, maybe. And, uh, yeah. and then they just, they don't listen anymore, and it's, it's a, which I do find it's strange. You know, just listen. You know, we've talked yeah. to people here who who were huge Dylan fans back then, but they just—it's hard to. Well, to it becomes understand. mixed up with parts of their own life, yeah, and idealizations of a figure. If if you don't, if you haven't opened yourself to kind of post desire Dylan or wherever it is that mm. you got off mm. the bus mm. in the seventies, go home with Telltale Signs. Mm. Yeah. And if you can't hear, you know, in, in the um, the folk remake of most of the time, if you oh, can't hear that he's essentially God. exactly the same guy he was in 1964, mm. <laughs> yeah. you know, because that that song that song belongs on another side of Bob Dylan, yeah. right? But it's yeah. like people don't want to yeah. get let him into their brain because he. But this gets into fundamental issues of art and audiences and and long careers and what it is to idealize something and project. You know, I mean, I, I kind of wrote about this in a in another case for myself about my sense of betrayal to do with David Byrne. I was, I, you know, I was sort of formed by my love of of Talking Heads when I was a teenager. I was in the same city as as they were, and I got to see them play live a lot. And mm. I just thought, you know, they'd cracked the code. They said everything about what it felt to be alive. And then when I didn't like the records, you know, and I didn't like the last couple of Talking Heads records, and mm. I decided I. I was dead set against David Byrne's solo career. It was the massiveness of the betrayal mm. was a kind of a, it was like a religious, mm. you know, deconversion. It, 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 it had to do with emotions, not with music. Mm. Um, I mean, sure, I was making judgments and I was finding things less interesting than before. But to take someone and put them on this pedestal and then, of course, you have to destroy them. And that's an emotional dynamic about self and other and about, <laughs> you know, about disappointment. It's not, it's mm. not really. And so Dylan is the ultimate receptacle for that kind of dynamic. People, mm. he meant so much 
at such deep levels to so many people. And then they've, they've had some moment where they were disenchanted and they've never really recovered or even put, put that feeling of disenchantment in perspective. You're right. If you tell a Talking Heads fan um, that you like, you know, nothing but flowers, but you're not that bothered about, um, you know, once in a lifetime, <laughs> they give you the same kind of look that Dylan yeah, fans would give you yeah. if you said the same thing. Have you heard it? I'm mean, not sure if you've only heard any of the bootlegs, but there's been a couple of shows in California in October, so within the last month or so, that have just been phenomenally good. For I've my money, that he's playing good shows right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I, the, he kicked off the, the tour, I think, in Irvine, California, and I heard a, a recording of a, a gig at Palo Alto, I think it was. And mm. I think it's, I'm not going to say it's the best he's ever been, that's ridiculous, but it's certainly the best he's been since 2006 slash seven, since I saw him on the Modern Times tour. He just sounds yeah. absolutely reinvigorated. That's um, great. I can't wait to, to find a chance. I mean, I have a friend, uh, I'm living in, living in Southern California these days, and mm. I have a friend who gets to more shows than I did, than I do, and, and just saw him, I think, I don't know if, it, it wouldn't have been the Palo Alto, it might have been Santa Barbara mm. or uh, or somewhere here in the southern half of the state. And, and someone I trust said it was a very, very good show. And, you know, the last time I saw him live was at the Hollywood Bowl, and that was about eight yeah, it was probably eight or nine years ago now. And it to me, it seemed mostly a question of of energy capacity because the first half of the show was was extraordinary. I mean, there were four or five or even six songs where I thought this if he kept this level, mm-hmm. this would be a great show. And then there was somewhere, maybe the sixth, the sixth or seventh song on the list where the band was noodling and the, the soloing went a while. And it's almost like I could feel him exhale and go to a lower level. And it, I thought, the man is older. Yeah. He can't always sustain, you know. Yeah. And the second half of the show had things I liked, but I was, I was not feeling that yeah. same high. So, you know, so maybe he's just, it's, it's horrible to think of things in such material terms, but I know that for me, uh, you know, I'm a writer in my 50s. All I'm trying to do is like write a page of a novel every day. There are days when I've got it and days when I don't. And, and you know, maybe he's just sleeping better or, you know, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, was this in your article as well, uh, your uh, interview about the venues? I've read something recently about Dylan talking about venues. And mm. he says, I don't like to play arenas. Nobody should be playing yeah. arenas. Was that? I can't remember. And I thought, but then Bob. I think he taught. What the yeah. hell, man? I mean, you know, I've seen him at Wembley, which is our, you know, big shitty arena yeah. that everybody plays here. And it's really hard to, to be good in that space. It's just a really crappy space with a yeah. shitty sound. And everything about it is is awful. So why does he, you know, and he's, he said in this this article, I should be playing supper clubs. And you think, yeah, well, right. you have done. Why don't you continue? You, you right. Why don't you keep at it? Yeah. I mean, I think he goes to that gesture every once in a while. It goes all the way back to Ro- Rolling Thunder, right? That was the yeah. reaction to the the Down in the Flood tour where, you know, he was the biggest, I mean, that was the biggest rock and roll tour of its, to that point mm. in history, right? Mm. Was the Down in the Flood comeback, the 70, was it 73? 74, uh, yeah, before the flood, yeah. 74. Oh yeah, before the flood, excuse me. And, and, um, and then, you know, Rolling Thunder is precisely that, like, mm. I should be playing supper clubs impulse. It's mm. let me just show up like a bandit in town and play the campus <laughs> center or play some Old moderate yes. thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But but he's also, you know, he believes he should, you know, he comes also from 
the world of pop, the world of Elvis Presley, the world of the Beatles, where if you're big, you got to be all the way big. Like he cares about which records did hit the charts. Mm. And he, oh, I can sell out Madison Square Garden. I mean, I've seen him countless times in places that were too big for him to be effective, like your Wembley. Or, you know, he'll do Jones Beach out, uh, open air with, with Paul Simon on the front half of the bill. Mm. And, you know, part of him is just excited that he can, f- there's a sea of young faces and he thinks, I'm still, I'm still, I've still got on it. Top. You can yeah. always come back, but you can't uh, so come that's back a te- all the way. That's a tension. <laughs> it can't come back all the way. But you know what? You know what I want to do? You, we almost did this. It's going to be so rare in the history of your podcast that anyone will talk seriously about Together Through Life and Tempest. Let's go there for a second yeah, more. Oh, please. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, do it. it's really puzzling, right? One joke I want to make that isn't completely a joke is what's wrong with Together Through Life is that he stayed in Mississippi a day too long, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's, good, it's good. modern times retread. It's the guy who knows that he should never stop moving and evolving and shedding skins, thinks, eh, I could do that again. Yeah. And he tries to just do it again. And for me, that makes that the maybe really, strangely, the least interesting record in his entire journey. I couldn't agree with you more. Because oh, it really dumbest, yeah. feels like a like an attempt to go back and do exactly the same record a second time. And I can't think of, as bad as things have gone, I mean, even with... Even with knocked out, loaded, or down in the groove, mm. he's lost. He's helpless, and he, he, they're canceled records at some level. But they also are record. They they record a tra- a part of his trajectory, a moment in Dylan time, mm. a bad one, a, a drunken, self pitying, messed up one where he doesn't know what he's doing. But there's still photographs of a person who's trying to make something happen, mm. and mm. all he's trying to make happen on Together Through Life is what we did three years ago. <laughs> Modern times. Mm, it's let's, true. Let's get the band back together He's and reproduce it. But I, yeah. I, we, we, whenever we talk about it, we have talked about it before and we always disagree about it because I don't actually, I don't know, I sort of defend his right to coast, which is a terrible thing to sort of say about an artist. But when I, well, when I put that on, I, I don't have to think. I don't have to work very hard. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, as you say, it's Dylan doing Dylan doing old yeah. Dylan. Well, the weird thing is because it uh, it never comes into full focus, it can surprise you. Whereas you memorize, you know, when I'm listening to Modern Times and Nettie Moore or Spirit on the Water or Ain't Talking, I'm having, you know, I'm, I'm deeply imprinted on the record and I find new things, but they're tiny little corners I'm looking around in these extremely familiar recordings. Whereas every now and then, if I've got like all of Dylan on scramble, or something, a Together Through Life song might come on, and I'll be like, have I ever even heard this before? <laughs> That's kind of cool. Jolene? And I'll kind of like it for surprising Jolene. me. Well, there's, if there's yeah. some, Is that there's some line in, in Jolene yeah. or one of those songs about, um, yeah, but, you know, I can't remember. It's about young women running circles. I can't remember specifically how he puts it. These these young women and running on, running their mouths. I can't remember what it is, but it always sort of makes me laugh because it reminds me of some old guy in Miami Beach who's like completely yeah. lost. Yes. Uh, and I, well, the old Jew comes out, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. What are you talking about? What, yeah. is, what are these kids today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to me, that um, I find I mean, that amusing. And so it's that old, you know, if you underrate a thing, it can sometimes kick your ass, right? Mm. I mean, it's expectations is an enormous game. So having dismissed the entire record, then, you know, this dream of you comes on. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's tender. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
<laughs> is my heart playing tricks on me? I've waited all my life to hear Dylan say that simple line. You know, I'm lost in the crowd. All my cheers are going, what? That's not so different from Mississippi. But of course, it, if you bear down on it, you're not going to be rewarded the same way. Yeah. Tempest is strange in a, in a different way. I mean, Tempest is like a tricky almost, I think. Again, uh, you know, I, I guess I'll make the same provocation I make around Under the Red Sky, that if you melted just, let's say, early Roman kings into love and theft or modern times, hmm. when that mode was still new and surprising to us, it might just do fine. Yeah, It might seem like one of the really cool things on that really cool, you know, new thought about thought that Dylan's had about what he can sound like and what kind of language he can employ. Mm. I, mean, I mean, I think a couple of different songs on it are you can isolate and, and feel pretty good about. The problem is the failure of the cumulative effort and the disaster at the end. Because I think never has he pratfalled uh, at the end of a record when he's trying to make a big statement. You know, I mean, even Knocked Out Loaded, <laughs> your reward for... For, for turning that record over is Brownsville Girl. Mm, yeah. mm. It has a thing. And it, it, the Dylan Long song is a very specific thing. Mm. It makes a big claim. The Dylan Long song says, you know, it's kind of like going to side four of Blonde on Blonde. You yeah. don't always want to play, <laughs> play that yeah. track. But when you let yourself be hypnotized, you're like, oh, that's a thing. Mm. The, the, you know, and it's the same thing with Highlands. I mean, I'm not always up for Highlands. <laughs> but when I let myself go yeah. in, yeah. you know, when I really walk through the door, it's awesome. And there's always surprises in it and always depths in it. Mm. Is there a faker Dylan Long song than Tempest? It's just doing yeah. nothing. It's, it's like one of those turgid. songs it's, that he definitely didn't talk to anybody about. Like, I guess he doesn't yeah. talk. But I mean, you'd think somebody... You know, if he if if he wasn't Bob Dylan, somebody would have had to say, "What is this song? What is it even about? Yeah, why did you write this? It's about I, ten I, minutes too long. Don't think it's about ten minutes too long. Yeah. It makes a claim, and that is a disaster. To have a Dylan Long song that is a black hole that's just sucking energy out of. I mean, you know, I don't always think that the long one is the best song on the record. I actually mm. think that you know, Lily, Rosemary, and the Jack of Hearts is kind of skating by compared to the rest of the emotional intensity of the rest of blood on the tracks it's it's fine and i you know i don't begrudge it too much but it's full of originality but, you couldn't but it's full of originality yeah. and it kind of clicks and and he was right to re-record it you know it's it's a little bit of an entertainment it's a movie what is tempest tempest is just a quagmire of dylan waiting for inspiration and then just recording his his waiting. And, uh, it, it never turns into anything. And I'm not a fan of Roland John, but Jesus Christ, Tempest is twice as long as Roland John. It's Yeah, well, how often are you ever going to get to Roland John? Well, yeah. <laughs> Before you've walked out of the room, you play the record in sequence. It's like the least listened to. But I, I think Roland John's kind of a counterfeit too. I mean, that's the song that everyone, I mean, in my mind, Lenny Bruce is a is a gem. Yeah, you know, too. And so many people were so embarrassed by Lenny Bruce. So many people were felt it was so awkward. I, I think he made a remarkable statement with that. And the, the, the clumsy specificity of he was the brother that I never had is devastating. Mm. Roland John is is the counterfeit. It's 
all I can do is think about them in the backseat of that limo in that famous clip. Exactly. Yeah. And think, you don't really you don't really like him as well as you're pretending to right exactly. here. Yeah. You know? Maybe he was That's trying to make I it think up is, to him. I can think about Yeah. But yeah, the thing is, like I think if Daniel up. Lanois had been there in the studio, yeah. he would have said, Bob, yeah. this is not gonna make the cut. This is right. not gonna make the cut. That's right. that's why you have producers. Yeah, it is true. It's a it's a it's a record with no editor of any kind. It and it just flies apart into you know, whereas, you know, as as much of a photocopy as Together Through Life is, it is one record. It kind of does its thing. Mm. Tempest just feels like a series of arrows pointing out of the record. You know, like, oh, could we isolate this and think about it? Because it doesn't all turn into anything. Yeah. Mm. Well, maybe that's why you turned to Frank. Well, but what do you make of yeah. uh, I Might as well ask about that. What do you make of the Frank well, years? Well, right. So we're really centering on the very end of things. I, I'm, you know. Well, we all um, know how brilliant he is. You know, that's why people listen to this podcast. That's where I say I finally get to have the universal Dylan experience of having gotten off the bus. And I gave them, you know, I gave them my earnest. I play, uh, I play one of them every once in a while, but I just I think it's a combination of. Uh, I think it's a hiding place. Mm. Um, I mean, he's not wrong that they're good songs, and he's mm. he's he's not uncommitted to his way of singing them. But it's it's monotonous. Finally, it's just monotonous. the 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 pleasures are too tiny to ferret out, and the <laughs> production quality is fatally tasteful. It's sort of like you know, it would almost be better if they were done. In a you know with with uh, like Chet Baker and a, a hundred Italian strings in full mm. in full kitsch mode, mm. there might be some energy that would plop out, but it feels like a hiding place. Yeah, well, we don't want to you know we don't need to stomp on the uh, what we think is the no. corpse of the. That's fine. <laughs> right. Of right. The, of well, the but also maybe they're stuff. working in a way that that I just can't. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I, keep, doing I keep thinking more. like, well, with, with Kubrick, for instance, you know, his, his last uh, film, Eyes Wide Shut, I can't get that at all still. But I, I'm hopeful that one day I will because he was so ahead of the game in the way that Dylan. Yeah, see, I, lo- I so love Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, <laughs> oh, so you, you've already got it. Well, I couldn't, I just, I, I still can't get it. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure there's something there because he's, he's, he's so brilliant. Uh, and in in the same way with Dylan, you know, that's why that's why when it comes up on shuffle, I will listen to something from the uh, you know the Sinatra albums, but it still hasn't for me dropped. His great Sinatra moment, of course, is when he sings to Sinatra. Do you know that clip? Oh, the yeah. Restless Farewell ninety um, five. Farewell, it? yeah. Oh my God, I love that. Me too. That is phenomenal. And that, that whole thing about the, the, the false clock is such a sort of harbinger of what was to come. You know, it's what is end, end of 95. And he's talking about the dust of rumor. And he'd been a joke for a good four years. And there's a man only ever yeah. photographed airports with a hood up, you know. And he was washed up. That was it. <laughs> and then he just, yeah. he had some, he had another ace in the pack. Sinatra requested that song, didn't he? That's right. And I mean, it's an old man's song written by Dylan too young to sing it. Mm. He looked into the future. It was a, it's a, it's a crazy lyric for such a young man to write. And he's finally grown into the singer who needs that song, you know, and Sinatra knew it. Mm. They both needed it. Is It Rolling Bob, Talking Dylan is recorded in the Johnny Todd Suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guys. We're on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Music is by Sam Hare. They let him out in 71. He lost a little weight, but he dressed like Jimmy Cagney, and I swear he did look great. 
He tried to find a way back into the life he left behind. To the boss, he said, I have returned, and now I want what's mine.